Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 57. The cost of following Jesus. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Have you ever been at a party and said something, maybe at a dinner party, and said something which just stopped the conversation all of a sudden? Everybody looked at you and maybe someone made a nervous laugh and you realize you've completely put your foot in it. You said something completely inappropriate. There's a, a really famous story. It's, uh, I actually looked it up because I thought it was attributed to someone else, but it actually comes, uh, it's an interchange in a dinner party that happened in Boston between Anatole France, who is a famous writer, a Pulitzer Prize winner, in fact, and Isadora Duncan, who's a beautiful and famous dancer. And Isabella Duncan uh, looked over and said, would it not be wonderful if we have a child who had your brains and my beauty? To which the author responds, yes, but supposing he had your brains and my beauty. And that, it's a zinger, right? It's, it's a real burn. And... <clears throat> It's witty, but it's not kind, right? And it, it's clever, but it's also cruel, right? It builds up the speaker. It makes us all think, oh, what a witty, clever person he is. But it certainly doesn't build up the person who's on the receiving end of it. There's a sense what I would call it's a puff piece. The person who says it is puffing himself up and trying to make other people think that he's more than he is. This is not what we think of when we think of as what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. Being concerned about other people, being engaged in building up and seeing, seeing people do well. Now many of the things that Jesus says in the Gospels seem out of character to us. We, we have a response like, did Jesus really say that? That sounds awful. Now some of this comes from a, a cultural problem. The Bible is 2,000 years old and we sometimes don't fully understand the culture in which it's written and so we, we sort of need to have our cultural understanding updated a little bit but i think some of it also comes from our understanding of jesus we we, we have sometimes what i would call a sunday school understanding of jesus the warm and fuzzy jesus the jesus that isn't confronting the, the, the jesus that perhaps doesn't say something that might be a little bit offensive or hurtful so when we were young, we drank milk, and now that we're older, we need to eat meat. In today's passage, we encounter three people and three interactions that sound really odd. 
The first person comes up to Jesus and says, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus almost seems to respond in a complete non sequitur. I don't really care what you said. I'm going to tell you a story about foxes and birds, and I'm going to tell you that I haven't got anywhere to put down my head. It's almost dismissive, rude, totally disregarding the, the person's, what the person seems to be coming with. The second person comes up and says, I'll follow you. And, but first of all, I'm just going to go and bury my father. And then Jesus seems to respond in this really callous way. He, he seems to look and said, look, let the, bed, let the dead bury the dead. I mean, would you say that to someone who just lost their father? Hey, look, we're going this way. Look, I, I've got a funeral preparation. I've got things to do. Let the dead bury their dead. You just come, come along with us. And then finally, we come to the third man who says, I'll follow you, but first I'm going to go home and say goodbye to my family. It's like a very appropriate thing to do, doesn't it? And Jesus, in this really discerning, demeaning way, looks at him, it seems, and says, what are you talking about? If, if you want to just go say goodbye to your family, you're not good enough for me. You're not up to snuff. You're not worthy of being part of my entourage and going where I'm going. What's going on here? Is Jesus rude, callous? and demeaning is jesus being unkind and cruel is he building himself up are these puff pieces is he speaking at the expense of other people now we're going to see that that's this is not the case in this series we're going to see that these words actually are for us but they're not always easy to hear as we unpack this particular encounter we're going to see that that this is actually a type of confronting kindness it's a directness not a cruelness it's hard but important for the listener to hear we'll see that jesus words in fact are answering two questions the first question is what does it mean to prioritize me jesus speaking what does it mean to prioritize me and the, first, and the answer to that we're going to see is get rid of the dross and the second one is well how do i find the dross and the answer to that is, ask me and I'll tell you. So we're going to look at this from two points of view. What does it mean to prioritize me? That's what Jesus is teaching us. And how do I find the dross that gets in the way of prioritizing you? So let's jump in to point one. What does it mean to prioritize me? Well, <coughs> a few months ago, Patty and I decided that we needed to be better informed and wiser people. So we signed up for a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. And of course, we got the, the daily version of that. And the first day, I, I read the thing from cover to cover. The second day, I read a little bit of it. Third day, maybe the front page. You know, within a few weeks, I was reading the headline as I was wrapping it up to put in the fire to start our fire, right? So reading diminished daily weekly to a glance at a headline over time now it's not the only thing that seems to work like that for me every now and again I get inspired to join a gym to lose some weight to get healthy and fit and these are great intentions right it starts off really great I'm in the gym for Monday Wednesday Friday of the first week and then Monday Wednesday of the next week maybe Wednesday every couple of weeks then it's a drive by the gym and look at it and and so the frequency and the duration, they sort of diminish. My commitment isn't really as deep as I thought it was, right? 
The only thing that gets lighter over time is my wallet. So, just like reading the Wall Street Journal and going to the gym, in perhaps in a much more deeper and significant way, our faith should be making a difference in our lives. It should be changing us. The problem is how small a vision we have for those changes compared to how big the vision is that Jesus has for those changes. Have you ever got one of these job descriptions where you read it and you think, I could do that? And then you turn up on day one and it's like, oh my gosh, this is way bigger than I thought it was. This is way out of my league. I don't know how to do this. Or I'm sure many of you can identify with this. When you get the house inspection, you say, oh yeah, a few little renovations here and there. That's not a big deal until you buy the house and you're, you're pulling off walls and you, everything gets way bigger than you first thought. And that's sort of what's going on here. And C.S. Lewis, in fact, uses the analogy of a house to bring this point home to us. Uh, I'm going to read this quote to you. It's a, a long-ish quote, but I think it captures it well. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He gets the drains right and stops the leak in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And it does seem to make, doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up a tower, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He can't, that he is planning uh, to come and live in himself. Okay. So when we think of and when we engage in our faith, we tend to think of clearing out the dross as an exercise in getting rid of those sins of omission you know skipping coming to communal worship or not tithing or not honoring our parents if i can just get those little routines right it'll all be okay or sometimes you think of it as the sins of commission you know i really should stop cheating on my wife cheating on my exams not paying my taxes if i can get all those things in an order everything's going to be okay but verse 60 here tells us really where the type of house or the expectation, the renovation work that Jesus wants to do. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now what he's talking about here is nothing less than the whole frame or arch of scripture as we understand it informing us. If you go back to Genesis, you see the cultural mandate, go forth. Subdue the earth, multiply, engage in culture that is pro propagating and moving forward and is associated with the kingdom of God. And the Great Commission. All authority in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples, build the church, bring people into it, baptize people in my name, teach them all about who I am. So there's this really big picture here which is supposed to be the priority of our lives. So it's not just about dealing with sins of omission and commission. It's not just about fixing the drain pipes and, and dealing with the leaks in the roof. We are being transformed into people who are supposed to be engaging in God's world 
in ways that we are called to do which are profoundly shaping and changing of the, of the things and the people around us. <coughs> Jesus is saying a newspaper subscription and a gym membership doesn't cut it, nor does attending church tithing, honouring your parents, not cheating on a spouse exams or paying taxes. It's heart restoration which is the issue to be a castle fit for me to live in. And you need to get rid of all the distractions which are getting in the way of that. So in this text, we see three men who are distracted in different ways. And now Jesus knows what's going on here. So when the first man comes up, and I'll read that to you, verses 57 and 58, as they walked along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now Jesus knows what's going on for this man. He knows that this man is consumed by comfort and security. And he comes back and says, Look, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. I don't have, by this world's definition, comfort and security. And if you follow me, you're going to have to prioritize me of your comfort and security. This isn't just me. When you follow me, you're going to have to walk in, in, in my ways and my paths. So he really confronts, he hits home. He targets the idol in the heart of the man who he's talking to. I don't have comfort and security, much less the foxes and the birds. And as my follower, you're going to have to give up prioritizing comfort over building the kingdom of God. Comes up to person two. Let me read that one to you. 59 to 60. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now what's going on here? This guy's got a lot of priorities in his life. He's got a lot of other things. Things that are important to him. Things which are good and healthy and wholesome. This is not time that's unwell spent or not necessary. It's not that he's just indulging himself. But Jesus realizes that he is going to prioritize, uh, prioritize, that this is a man who prioritizes his time on things which are important to him. And he isn't willing to give up that time and, and use what he's been given and his gifts and his priorities, his orientation, that star that was referenced in our confession, on uh, the kingdom of God. And so Jesus targets the idol. He hits the heart point again. I need to bury the dead. I need to spend time on the things that are important to me. Jesus says, your priorities will distract you from your kingdom proclamation. You need to get your priorities right. Person three, Jesus, uh, verses 61 and 62. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replies, no one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back will be fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, I'll come after I've said goodbye to my family. Now, Jesus knows what's going on in this person's heart. This is the beginning of the excuses. This is distraction number one. That's the implication here. You know, I'm going to say goodbye to my family and we'll, we'll have a farewell meal. 
then I'm just going to run my daughter to soccer practice and I'll need to make sure my finances are in good shape so I'll need to do a few more months work to get my 401k it, uh, solid and, and I want to make sure that my youngest actually graduates high school and, and then I'll need to give some help with the grandparents so I'll be back when I'm 72. Jesus understands the process that's going on in this man's heart and he hits home, he hits at the idol. Jesus is saying, you are prioritizing your role in the biological family over your role in the kingdom family. Now, comfort and security. Time spent doing good things, unnecessary, enjoyable things. Family. Surely Jesus is not against these things. Surely these things are not dross that should be thrown away. Sometimes when we read these texts, we get into these places where we get caught in this bivocating faith messages, right? We're either stuck in guilt or shame. Oh my gosh, I haven't sold everything. Or we say it's impossible. It's silly. It's foolish. No human being could possibly do that. So there's something going on here which we need to unravel, to unpack. So... Let's move on to the second point. And we're going to spend some time in reflection here, but I'm going to set it up first. How do I find the dross? Now, how do these men find the dross? We're going to do it the same way. They asked Jesus, and Jesus told them. Right. Now, first of all, let's put it this way. Jesus is not a cult leader, right? Jesus doesn't say, there is a mandate, and everyone must sell everything they've got, and they must put it in a big pile, and they need to give it to me, right? He doesn't say, this is what we're doing at 7, and then at 8, and then at 9, and then at 10. He doesn't dictate to all of us that now we're going to drink this Kool-Aid, and now we're going to do this, and now we're going to do that. Jesus isn't asking us to choose between serving the church or serving fan, uh, family. You see, Christ's lordship is about freedom, not control. I'm going to say that again. Christ's lordship is about freedom and not control. Freedom to be part of something bigger and more complete with regards to comfort, security, fulfillment, and family. Not something other than comfort, security, fulfillment, and family. Now, in a broken world, this is somewhat of a broken proposition. I'll be honest with you. It's really hard. Um, we need to see the fullness of the kingdom of God to come. We need to recognize that that's the priority. You see, in the coming kingdom, there is complete comfort and security. There's complete fulfillment. And we are completely in good relationships with family. And when we haven't experienced that in this not yet part of the kingdom, we're foretasting that coming kingdom. We're seeing what is good. And when we participate in those things to create foretastes and to see the kingdom become more fully realized on earth, then we are proclaiming the kingdom. We're doing the work of the cultural mandate. We're doing the work of the Great Commission. That's definitely part of it. Foretasting is good. Now, it's really interesting when you look at the book of Luke followed by the book of Acts. The book of Luke is set up as a book where Jesus is progressively walking towards Jerusalem. 
and then he gets to Jerusalem, he's crucified, he's resurrected, and just before his ascension, what does he tell his disciples and his followers? He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, the focal point of history is happening as Christ is crucified on the cross. They're walking towards Jerusalem, and now we're walking back out into the world proclaiming the kingdom. And that's the call on us. We have to be working out in our lives what's the distraction that's getting in the way of who God made me to be and what God has called me to do in proclaiming the kingdom. In a sense, we need to be looking at that gospel structure in Luke. It all centers on the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And then that picture of Acts as we go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and so we're trying to always work out, discern, balance when it comes to comfort and security for other people for, and for myself. What is building your kingdom? What is giving me a footing so that I can do more for you? That I can actually proclaim the kingdom where comfort and security is complete and real. When it comes to managing our time, what pieces of time are rejuvenating, refreshing? What pieces of time give me more of an insight into who you are to give me, more, give me fulfillment and completion so that when I go out into the world, I can proclaim that piece of the kingdom to other people and the same when it comes to family. How do I engage in my family? How do I build up other families? How do I respond in a way which creates foretaste and builds kingdom focus? both for my family and for the families around me. And there's a cost in this. I just want to be honest with you up front. There's a cost. In a broken world, it's a broken proposition. In this time, we will pay a price for following Christ. And the price is going to be to our comfort, perhaps, and our security. It's going to be to our time, and it may well be to us and our family. And what I want to do is, I want to go through this process and I want to look at each of these areas, comfort and security, and look at what heart renovation. I'm going to ask us to do a bit of meditation. What time heart renovation do we need? What family heart renovation? And I'll give you a context for each and then I'm going to give you a minute. And what I want you to do is ask Jesus. I want you to sit there and meditate. And you know what? It's going to feel a little weird probably, but we need to practice the discipline of sitting and listening to Jesus. And we also need to recognize that we may not always like the answers. You know, these three men didn't really like the answers. We may not like the answers. But it's a beautiful opportunity to engage and to hear. So comfort and security. I want, you to, I want to point out that Jesus was very concerned about other people's comfort and security. Especially socially and especially emotionally and economically. You see at the wedding feast of Cana, his very first miracle. What does he do? He restores the social embarrassment of the person hosting the wedding. Every time he touched a leper, he was saying, you're valuable, you're meaningful. I want to give you emotional and, and in effect, by restoring those, the lame and the crippled, uh, he was actually restoring economic security. So he wasn't unaware or unconcerned about those things. 
But he never let that even get in the way of his calling, his walk towards Jerusalem. In fact, I would say that that work was part of his calling. And he focused on that. And it wasn't that Jesus' disciples didn't have money. They didn't have a lot of money, but they had enough. They had someone who was dedicated to looking after it and buying the bread and getting the food that they needed. It's complicated, but they never let it get in the way, or he never let it get in the way of his calling. And one of the questions that I want you to do as you reflect on this, comfort and security, money. Where your heart goes, your money follows. What do you spend a lot of your money on? And I'm not saying don't spend your money on that. What I'm really asking you to do is reflect on the question, what comfort and security is getting in the way of me walking from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth? What's getting in the way of me kingdom proclaiming? What cost am I willing to pay to engage in getting rid of those distractions and being more faithful, hearing God's voice say, well done, good and faithful servant. All right. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and we're going to ask Jesus, please speak to us all individually, as strange and odd as it seems. As we sit and we reflect and we meditate on this word, as we ruminate on it, please speak to us, Lord Jesus. Reveal the dross in our hearts. Amen. So did you hear Jesus' voice? Did that reflection and this scripture bring any conviction into you? Did you like what you heard? I want to talk about time. Now, this one is about the dead bury their dead, and it sounds like Jesus is being callous, but we know that Jesus was not callous, certainly not about death. When Lazarus died, he was willing to walk for three days to be there. To be with Lazarus's sisters, to comfort and mourn with them, he wept himself. It is not that Jesus doesn't realize the importance of mourning. And in fact, the use of time is not something which uh, Jesus wasn't willing to petition and use well. We see often that he's exhausted from healing, but we also see that he takes plenty of time for solitude. 
He's known as a drunk and a glutton because he likes to eat and drink with his friends. He was able to live a well-petitioned life that was focused around moving towards Jerusalem. And he's asking us to do the same as we move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you think about the story with Mary and Martha, where they're sitting at his feet, and one of them's running around busy as all get out, making a fantastic meal, and the other one's listening. See, that meal needed to be made. But the truth is, it didn't need to be made to the extent... It, you know, the question to ask is not, how do I do the very best that I can? How do we get consumed with the fear of not missing out? I'm going to do everything, so I don't miss out on anything. I'm not willing to fail, so I'm willing to burn myself out and prioritize everything. I, I believe I'm indispensable, so I can't let anything fall through the cracks, right? We get consumed with our own sense of importance, with our own need to project our own image. We get all caught up in these idols of the heart that consume our time. The Mary Martha story tells us that the, the real answer is do the best you can in the right amount of time allocated to that. Prioritize the time. Be willing to step back and say, I'm not called to be a brilliant scholar, just a good enough scholar. Whatever it is that gets in the way. Now I want you to reflect again on your time priorities. I'm going to give you another minute. And I, I know it may feel a little uncomfortable, but I want you to ask Jesus to speak to you again. I want you to sit and let your heart rest. And I want you to think and reflect on these questions. What image management activities do I invest my time in? What am I afraid to miss out on to the point where I'll do things which I know are not about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the kingdom? What am I afraid of failing so that I won't, I won't stop or I, I won't not push myself too hard? Where do I believe I'm indispensable? Lord, reveal to us the places where we, we use your time to feed our idols. Let me give you another minute to think about that. Amen. 
from now to family, which is probably the most complicated of all of them. I guess I'll ask the same question before I do one. Did you have any dross revealed to you as you sat there reflecting? Did you like the answer that Jesus gave you? Move on to the family area of heart renovation. Now, we see that Jesus has a very interesting relationship with his family. In Matthew 3, after the Pharisees come and try to shut him down, his family, quite agitated by the experience, his mother and his brother, come and to try to shut him down too. And he basically says, you know, if you're going to do that, you're not my family. So we see that willingness to say, family, biological family, you're not going to get in the way of my walk towards Jerusalem. On the flip side, we see when he's hanging on the cross, and he realizes that his mother is now following him, probably his brothers may not yet be, and he wants someone strong in the faith to be with and nurture his mother. He says to John, you're his new, she's your, he says to Mary and to John, Mary, he's your new son. John, she's your new mother. You need to take financial spiritual care of her. You need to be making sure she's okay. So there's a deep honoring of parent in there, but there's also that willingness to push back against the piece of the biological family that gets in the way. So it's not usually that stark. I remember listening to a pastor friend of mine, uh, David O'Leary from First Prayers. Some of you may know him. He's a wonderful old man who's now, he's retired, he's his daughter graduated, married a doctor, and they went and served in a dangerous part of Africa. And they had their ch brought up their child there. And I remember talking to him saying, you know what, it's, it's hard. It's really hard and yet it's, it's right. It's what I want and I don't want it. And I do want it and I don't want it. And I want to tell them not to go and I want to tell them to go. And I want to pray that God changes their mind and I want to pray that God looks after them. And, and so there's that peace where as a parent, he's working out what does it mean to encourage my children to do things which really don't fit with my desire for my child. I want my children to be safe. I, I honestly wonder about the Ananuchis and what it was like when they told their parents, we're heading off to Afghanistan and we're planning to have our, our children there. You know, and I, wanna, I don't want to minimize the cost. There's cost with these decisions, and they're hard. One day, maybe Rob can tell us the story about what happened when he told his parents he was off to Afghanistan, I don't know. But they were doing what God was calling them to do. But there's a cost there, and it is hard, and it's broken in this world, and that cost can be ugly and difficult, but people need to be willing to do it. It's usually not even that stark, though. For most of us, it's the idols of their heart. How am I going to make my children vicariously achieve what I wished I had achieved? You know, how am I going to control my children to be what I think they should be? My child must have, my child must be, my child must do because of whatever idol is building up in my heart. Idols of the heart. What about with our spouses? Those hard places we refuse to soften in. We have these little small bitternesses and resentments and they build up over time and over time and we just let them, we let them stay there. They become calluses and we don't do the work of softening them so that we can be kind and gentle, that we can grow 
and mature. I'm not going to move towards this person again in this way because they did this and that and something else. The necessary softness or the necessary confrontations. What are we being called to do when it comes to biological family? And I'm going to ask you again, what is God calling you to do to give up or to embrace as you proclaim the kingdom, moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. How is God asking you to build that up? And how is he saying you need to change your relationship with your family? I'll give you one more minute. Amen. So at the very least, we spent three minutes times however many people here in meditative prayer. And perhaps you were not able to quieten your heart enough. But I want to encourage you to practice that. I hope that some of you did hear Jesus speak to you and did hear Jesus confront some of the idols. Do some heart renovation work. Reveal to you where change is needed in confidence, security, in time, or in family heart renovation. So those of you who spent a little bit of time and were able to reflect, do you have any dross? You can just sort of nod quietly if you have some dross. No one wants to nod their head, all right. Does everyone not have any dross? Hands up if you have no dross. All right. I'm glad to hear that because we do have dross, and that means... According to verse 62, that you are not fit for the kingdom of God. You are not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, only one person had no dross in his life. He came and fulfilled the cultural mandate and the great commission as they were called to do, as he was called to do. They enjoyed comfort when it was there. But they didn't prioritize it. <clears throat> they didn't prioritize comfort and security over walking to Jerusalem. They took time to eat and drink with friends, to find time for solitude, to pray, to do the things with their time that completed them and fulfilled them and refreshed them. They lived a full and whole experience of the 33 years they had, but they did it in a way that didn't compromise their walk towards Jerusalem. They served, but they did not idolize their biological family. They did not prioritize 
their biological family over their kingdom family. One fits within the other. It's complicated and nuanced. It requires us to spend time listening to Jesus. He lived the perfect life and he gave it up to redeem those not fit for the kingdom of God. He gave it up for, for all of us who are not fit for the kingdom of God. And the question isn't, <clears throat> can you emulate him? That is not the question, because you can't. And not because it's humanly impossible. He lived that obedience in human life. You can't because you haven't already and you won't tomorrow and you're not going to the next day. The, trust, the question is, can you trust him? Let's read this next quote from C.S. Lewis. To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. Of course, we try. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have already handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. But in trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. You see those good things, the use of your time, comfort and security, family, you see them as foretastes and you invest in them for that reason. Hopefully in those three minutes of meditative prayer, you ask Jesus, where's the dross? What confidence security do I prioritize over kingdom proclamation? What time priorities distract me from kingdom proclamation? How do I let family roles and responsibilities get in the way of kingdom proclamation? And as you reflect on that, I hope you don't walk away from here, throw it away, forget about it. What I'd really like you to ask is the next question. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Are you going to let him do heart renovation in these areas? Are you willing to let go of the dross? Can you take it to the next step? Can you talk to someone that you trust, that you walk in the faith with, to hold you accountable to doing those things? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we know that these three men who you spoke directly to, who you spoke with intentionality. You did so because you loved them and you wanted to hear the message. And we know that sometimes when we sit and we reflect and we listen, we don't always like what we hear. We don't like the dross that you turn up. But we do realize, Father, that you are calling us to more than a cheap subscription to the Christian faith. You are calling us to a full and committed life to one that roots out dross and proclaims the kingdom, that is inspired by and transformed by, but more importantly, redeemed by your walk to Jerusalem. And so we stand up and we say, we're going back from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We submit to your lordship in all its fullness. We ask this blessing in our lives, Father, this blessing to pay the cost of being part of your kingdom work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.